So last night, the NBA announced the 70 participants that are going to be competing in the NBA Combine next week in Chicago. There's also another list of guys who are going to be competing in the G League Combo, the best performers from that event. We'll get the invite the next week to the main event. So let's talk all about it. He covers the NBA draft and hoops in general for TheAthletic.com. Friend of the show, Sam Bassini, joining us once again on Rock Shock Sports Talk. Sam, first off, been a long time. How you been, man? I'm doing well, Nick. How are you doing? I'm doing good, man. It's always uh, it's always good to talk to you, especially this time of year. I know on the surface, it doesn't seem like uh, KU is going to be stealing a lot of headlines in the weeks and months preceding the NBA draft, but yet uh, at least one player gets the invite to Chicago next week, and no surprise at who it is, Ochai Baji, uh, the lone Jayhawk, going to the NBA Combine. Let's start first with him because he seems to be the guy, Sam, who has uh, perhaps the biggest decision to make whether to, to keep his name in or, or come back. On the surface, when you look at Ochai Baji as an NBA prospect, what's sort of the uh, overall takeaway? Yeah, he's an interesting one. I think that the idea for Oshai is that he can be a three and D guy. He's six foot five. He has a really powerful frame. Uh, obviously, knocked down about thirty eight percent from three this year. I'll be honest; I don't have him as my top rated prospect from Kansas. Uh, I I understand the appeal of what the idea of his game can be, but just over the three years he's been at Kansas, I I don't think that that reality has borne itself out often enough. There are games where he looks spectacular, like in the big 12 tournament where he dropped like 26 or 25 or something against Oklahoma, but it's just not consistent enough. And there always just seems to be something missing with his game every time that I watch him. And, uh, you know, I'll kind of stop there and let you kind of take over because you've probably watched every game he's played. I've probably watched, you know, 30, 35, 40 Kansas games over the last three years. So, um, you you know, you're definitely going to be a bit more of an expert on Ochai's game than I am, but uh, there's always something missing, it felt like, with him to me. Well, what's really interesting about Ochai and, and sort of his career arc is that he came in as a late addition, if you remember, redshirted initially to start yep. his freshman season, but halfway through the year, injury plagued, uh, they started missing guys, so they pulled the redshirt. This was not a guy who was uh, a highly heralded recruit. I think he was, like, borderline top 150 coming out of his class in what would have been yep. uh, 2018. But yet every year he's gotten better. Like, I don't think you could argue that from his sophomore season when the expectations were sort of high to this year as a junior, like he was tangibly better and he sort of became KU's go-to guy offensively. And I think this becomes like the, the age old discussion of great college player versus not really an NBA prod- prospect because what I think held Kansas back at times were when they looked to him to be the guy offensively, yet he was just never a guy who was going to get his own shot. He, he didn't have the, the handles to break anybody down. Yeah. Um, he didn't really have the quick release to, to pull up and, 
and knock down those pull-up jumpers. And I just think when you just go through all of the cons of what it will take to play at the next level, he just doesn't seem to check very many of those boxes. So I will like, we're on the same page here, but I will slightly just push back a touch because at the NBA level, he won't be asked to really create his own shot, right? Like that's just not going to be the role. His role is going to be three and D he's going to have to knock down corner and wing jumpers, hopefully space the floor out to 27 feet and shoot and then make quick decisions and play well within the construct of the offense. The problem that I have oftentimes with Ochai is that, I have never felt like he processes the game all that quickly. There, there are very few moments, it feels like, where he's making a quick decision mm. and making a quick decision to shoot, unless it's like a set play for him. Like he's, um, like hold the ball for just that extra split second and sometimes gets contest out there. And then as a passer, he doesn't really see the high level passes that are available to him. Uh, and that often just like kind of slows down and bogs down the offense a little bit. And then defensively, I think he's never really taken advantage of the athletic gifts that he very clearly has. Yeah. Like he's okay on defense. I, I was, I'm not saying he's a bad defender. He's not a bad defender, but he's never been a standout defensively either. And that's kind of what the role has to be. He has to make quick decisions. He has to be a legit positive on defense. And, I, like, I'll be honest, like, I, I like Marcus Garrett as a prospect. Like, I'll just be straight with that. Like, I, I if I was an NBA team, I'd rather draft Marcus Garrett. What would be the argument for a guy like Garrett over Ochai? Uh, just defense, decision-making, uh, toughness, competitiveness. Uh, a guy who knows what his role is and is willing to play into that role. Uh, consistently. I mean, Marcus Garrett was one of the five best defenders in college basketball each the last two years, right? And that will translate to the next level. He's not one of these, you know, six foot one, six foot two guards who are smaller and kind of will get bullied at the next level. He's six foot five and is strong and plays physically. Like, he's going to be able to guard across the perimeter positions pretty easily because he's so big. He's a smart passer. He really processes the game at a high level, I think. Uh, you know, the jump shot isn't there, but if there's one thing that NBA teams have always consistently felt like they can fix with their development trajectories and developmental uh, staff, it's the jump shot. And if I'm, if I'm an NBA team, I'm going in, I'm thinking, look, literally all I have to do to make Marcus Garrett an NBA player is getting him to 35 to 37% from three. And he's improved a little bit over the course of his career. He's an 80% free throw shooter now. He shot 35 from three last year, even though he's not like super comfortable taking them, right? Um, like, I, I don't think anyone is going to sit here and say that even though he shot 35 from three last year, that we think that, you know, Marcus Garrett's some high level yeah. shooter, right? Yeah. Having said that, I, I just, I think there's enough room for growth there to where I feel comfortable. Uh, trying to develop that skill uh, if I'm an NBA developmental staff bringing Marcus Garrett in. So in that same vein of being comfortable that you can fix what aren't Marcus Garrett's strengths right now, is is that not necessarily how you view Ochai and him needing to work on his weaknesses? I mean, you talked about 
um, the, the quick decision making, like processing the game at a, at a high level and making those split second decisions. Is that something that that teams generally have less confidence in their ability to fix or enhance over time? I think it's harder to do that. I wouldn't say it's impossible. And I think that Ochai could very well have like a good NBA career as a role-playing, you know, three and D wing comes off the bench and knocks down some shots and, um, you know, occasionally goes out and grabs a rebound and, you know, does all of that stuff. Goes and runs in transition and creates plays that way. Like, there is a world where he can do that, but I think it's just a lot easier to get into a gym and rep jumpers than it is like yeah. working through progressions and reads with guys, uh, you know, like Ochai who are still learning what they have to do on the court. One of the things that I wonder about Ochai specifically as it relates to the, to the last two years, the year before you had all American point guard and Devon Dotson, but he wasn't, a prototypical point guard uh, distributing and creating shots for others certainly was not at the top of, of his list of strengths. And in this past year, KU effectively didn't have a point guard. I mean, it was Marcus Garrett, but that was ultimately, I think what plagued them at the end of the year, they just didn't have anybody to sort of initiate that offense and create shots for others. We know who's in tow for Kansas, Remy Martin. Um, he didn't get a combine invite, so we probably don't even have to talk about uh, his prospects at the next level. Uh, Joe Yesifu from Drake. You've got some guys who have more of a history of being able to create for others. Is there any part of you that wonders if we could see an enhanced version of Ochai if he is around playmakers really for the first time in his career? Is he going to be though? Because like Remy Martin has always been a shoot first player. Yeah. Uh, Yesifu uh, is a score first guard. Like they can both pass to an extent, but like I don't think that they're drastically better as passers than Marcus Garrett is. I think Marcus Garrett made some strides over the course of his four years, uh, being able to run a team and being able to run an offense. So, look, I I understand what you're saying, and I think that you're definitely right to an extent. I also just feel like Kansas over the last couple of years. I mean, especially this past year, it felt like their offense was like fairly well spaced most of the time like uh you had mccormick certainly inside there and he emerged over the course of the second half of the year particularly and uh sometimes they play five out even with like jalen wilson like there were there was space and there was opportunity for oshai to be able to create off of advantages and you know maybe getting a point guard there that will you know that can distribute would help but I don't know that that guy's coming in necessarily next year because both the guys that Kansas has coming in, while they're very good players and will certainly help, uh, you know, I, I don't know that they're necessarily going to be, you know, throwing out uh, awesome passes and making plays for yeah. Ochai to be able to uh, make things happen. If anything, like I think Bobby Pettiford can do that a little bit from what I've mm. seen. Uh, I haven't seen like a crazy amount of him, but I've seen a decent amount of him on tape, and I've been impressed with his compete level and impressed with his uh, passing ability in North Carolina. I think what it is more for me with the addition of Remy, and this is something that your colleague at the athletic friend of ours, CJ Moore has written about. And I think he's gotten some quotes from some coaches around the big 12 was that KU, you just had to defend their sets last year. There was nothing that they were going to do that, yep. that you were going to prepare for. And then all of a sudden 
they just had the perfect set because some guy made a play. And that's what I think guys like Remy and Yesifu bring to the table. Now, is that simply going to be making plays for them or is it going to be creating plays for other? I don't know, but it just, to me, it, it does bring an added element of unpredictability to where maybe I'm projecting best case scenario in this regard of bringing out the best of other guys. But I just feel like there's going to be things that you can't really prepare for where times last year where a lot of the, a lot of the perimeter shots that I felt like guys like Ochai and Christian Brown and, and Jalen Wilson were taking, they weren't the, these wide open shots that, that we've seen some of the better floor spacing Kansas offenses have in recent years. No, no, I think that's definitely true. That's a really good point. Like, like I said, like Remy and Yesifu are offensive upgrades for sure for Kansas. And that unpredictability that you're kind of talking about will definitely help. I mean, Yesifu is a very real athlete who can just get into the lane and break down defense. Remy is a legitimate like pull up guy who can, uh, you know, break down a guy with two or three. Uh, complex moves in and out into crossover into like behind the back into a jumper. Right. And that is definitely something that Kansas didn't have that will help open up Kansas's offense. I, but like, is it going to, are those guys going to get Ochai the ball? I, I'm not necessarily convinced of that. If he comes back, <laughs> I think that you're probably looking at a number, another like, you know, 14, 15 point per game season for him. Uh, like, even though I think he's not an incredible prospect, I guess that I would say, what is he coming back to? Mm. He'd be coming back to a good team for sure. And sometimes like a rising tide raises all ships. Right. Yeah. But I don't know that he's necessarily going to like showcase all of the things that will like put him into a greater role and help his NBA draft stock for uh, the 2022 draft. If he wants to return. Talking to Sam Vicini of The Athletic here on RCST. One guy we haven't talked a ton about. Uh, he didn't get an invite to the Combine, but he did get an invite to the G League Combine, which starts this weekend in Chicago. Jalen Wilson, he was a guy who burst onto the scene at the beginning of the year. Um, obviously had some regression by the end of the season and finished pretty poorly. You couple that with uh, the, the the COVID issue that knocked him out for a couple of games it, was a pretty anticlimactic ending to his year yet um, still testing the draft waters. I don't think many people expect him to keep his name in, but what's sort of the last year been like for somebody who evaluates these guys when you first started to take more notice of him versus how you feel about him now? Yeah, I was really excited early on when I saw Jalen. Uh, you know, obviously a redshirt freshman came in with like a top 60 or so pedigree in the country. I figured that, you know, he'd be a useful player, but I don't think anyone saw like, um, you know, 20 against Kentucky and then uh, what? He had 20 against Creighton in that mm -hmm. big showcase game that was fun. And then he had 20 against Texas, right? Like it was, um, it was really fun to watch him early in the year. And, uh, it was interesting too, because even throughout that time, coach self would consistently say things like, you know, we got to get McCormick more involved in the offense, right? Even while these small ball Jalen Wilson at the five lineups were really working, it even felt like he felt like there was some regression coming in my opinion. Like he felt like, uh, you know, we're going to be a lot more consistent if we can get McCormick 
uh, more involved in the offense. So that says like a little bit to me, like maybe that's just like kind of reading a little bit too much into it. And you know, sometimes that happens on this front, but uh, I wasn't wildly stunned. If only because when you look at Jalen's game, he's not like a wild skilled guy who like has this really pretty jump shot and uh, has these like, you know, complex kind of what we were talking about with Remy Martin, like being able to take someone off the bounce with like three complex moves in a row and then read where the defender is going and then counter off of that. Right. Mm-hmm. So mostly he was taking advantage of advantages of mismatches at five. And that's just like not going to be his role at the NBA level. So to me, what I look for Jalen Wilson, he's, he's going to have to be, something in the range of a 38 to 40% three-point shooter at six foot eight, uh, you know, kind of, kind of similar to someone like at Virginia this year with Trey Murphy doesn't necessarily have to be Trey Murphy. Cause that guy's going to be like 41 to 43 in the NBA, I think is a three-point shooter, but needs to be you know, 38 to 40 needs to provide defensive value. needs to be able to attack closeouts at a high level and be, to be able to do it against other wins and not just against, uh, the kind of guards that, or the kind of bigs that he was taking advantage of early on in the year last year. So are you saying he is somebody who, if returned, improved next season, he could see a significant bump in draft stock? Yeah, I mean, if he comes back and really shoots the lights out and, uh, you know, continues to make strides defensively and uh, does some things, yeah, I, th- I think he could help himself for sure. I mean, he could, he can, Help himself is only because I'm not a hundred percent convinced right now that he would get a two-way contract. And if that's the case, I always think guys are better off going back if they have um, a real amount of physical tools. Like Jalen has six foot eight, you know, two ten, two hundred and fifteen pounds, something like that, uh, and some potential to shoot it and some potential to create his own shot and mismatch advantage situation. So if, if I was him. I, I probably would return in that case, given how young he still is. I'm gonna I'm gonna let you go here in, in just a second, but I want to follow up to to what you just said there because I think it's sort of an interesting. We talk a, we've talked a lot about that because most of these guys aren't none of the guys we've talked about are guaranteed to get a deal to get it to get packed to get picked or to get that two way deal. Um, you just mentioned it there, sort of your philosophy for. Um, taking a two-way deal versus not getting a deal and still trying to make it work versus coming back? Like, what is sort of the threshold for guys who are sort of in that in-between area of trying to get that two-way deal, probably not going to get drafted while also debating whether or not to go back to school? Oh, man, Nick. I mean, it's so situation-dependent, in my opinion. Like, with Ochai, like, I think there's, like, a reasonable case for him. He's a junior. He's played three years now. We kind of know what it looks like. Um, like, there's a real case for him to balance. I think that if he has a two-way contract, I would understand him better. Uh, if you're Jalen Wilson and you get a two-way contract, I might be willing to ride that out uh, and come back to Kansas for another year uh, if the best you can do is a two-way because I think there might be a little bit more upside beyond there. Just physically, he's six foot eight. He's a little bit bigger. Uh, he's starting from a higher place, in my opinion, than where Ochai was, uh, even during that like 
potential breakout sophomore year. Uh, I was more impressed with what I saw from Jalen Wilson as a freshman, even though it fell off later in the year. So, you know, I think that a potential, you know, even if he wants to get a two-way, like I think that is got a chance to be there pretty regularly for him, just given the size and potential to shoot it. Uh, if he does the things he's supposed to do and hits the uh, marks within his developmental trajectory that he's supposed to over the course of the next couple of years. Now, um, now I'm trying to think of someone else in the Big 12. Like if I was Matthew Meyer mm-hmm. at Baylor, uh, I don't think I would come out for a two-way contract. I think I would want a guaranteed deal because NBA teams are really excited about me. NBA teams uh, are very interested in the skill set as a shot maker that I bring to the table. So if, if the best I can guarantee myself on July 7th, which is the early entry withdrawal date uh, for these college kids, the best that he can guarantee himself is a two-way on that date, I think I'd probably go back and play my luck and see what happens in a really strong situation where the offense is probably going to be built around me next year. It's good stuff from Sam Vecini. You can check out his work at The Athletic. He hosts the Game Theory Podcast, which you can find wherever you listen to your podcast. Sam, it's always good to catch up with you, man. Thank you so much for uh, for taking some time to hop on with me today. Yeah, of course, Nick, anytime. Support for today's episode comes from Manscaped. Father's Day is just around the corner and you probably need a gift for a hairy dad. Make your dad proud this year and get him and yourself the Manscaped Lawnmower 4.0 and Ultra Smooth Package. You know what they say, like father, like son. The brand new Lawnmower 4.0 and Ultra Smooth Package is perfect for you and the dad in your life to complete your grooming game. Get 20% off plus free shipping with the code RCST at manscaped.com. If you want to get the complete package, the Manscaped Ultra Smooth Package is a three-step kit to help keep your family jewels protected. Step one, the crop exfoliator infused with ingredients that can soothe, clear, and keep the skin on and around your groin feeling refreshed, reducing the risk of ingrown hairs by your delicates. Step two, the crop gel. See where you're shaving with our unique clear shaving gel just for the groin. And step three, it's time to shave the crop shaver was designed for shaving the groin area with confidence. Three precision blades include extra-wide lubricating strips and a pivoting head for the ultimate groin grooming experience. Get 20% off plus free shipping with the code RCST at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com when you use the code RCST. It's dad bod season. Time to get smooth. Ochai Abaji gets a NBA Combine invite, Chicago Next week, he's the only Jayhawk to get that invite. Both Marcus Garrett and Jalen Wilson got invited to the G League Combine, which starts this weekend. The top, I think, five or ten or so guys who perform well there will get invited to the other Combine. Let's break it all down with Jesse Newell of the Kansas City Star. Jesse, from from what we know right now, Ochai gets the Combine invite. That in and of itself isn't much of a surprise. How would you handicap right now the chances that Ochai comes back to KU versus keeping his name in the draft? It's a great question. You know, I mean, it's, it's hard to answer without knowing some events, kind of like the weather. You know, it's hard to predict two weeks out because you don't know what's going to happen one week out yet. And for Ochai, it sure seems like from all the social media stuff and all the statements he's made that he's very interested in turning pro and that if he has some sort of guarantee from a team, whether it's a two-way contract or potentially getting taken in the second round, that that might be something he'd be very interested in. And I've said this before, but 
he could be a really good fit in the pros. You know, you, you look back at some of the guys that Cade's had before that have been like conference player of the year types, and they just don't fit as well in at the next level. You know, like Terry Ellis or Dedrick Lawson, you know, kind of the undersized guys who school really well at college but are going to have trouble, you know, at least in the NBA of scoring and having that same production. Ochai's a little bit different, you know. He's a guy that if he's your fourth or fifth best player on the floor, he can perform that role very well. He's athletic. He can make threes. He can defend his position. So, you know, you can see potentially a team taking him in the second round and saying, hey, we don't need you to be a world beater. We don't need you to be James Harden. We need you to play with James Harden and make James Harden better. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's a tough one right now, I would say. And uh, obviously, Bill Self has opened up the scholarship to, uh, to welcome Ochai back if he does want to come back. But, um, yeah, we'll see what happens in the combine. I, I would say it's split right now. I would say that uh, neither one of those results would surprise me, whether he came back to Kansas or decided to stay in the draft. And I think part of that is um, a credit to Ochai and his skill set. And also, some of it's a little bit of luck because he seems to be a very good fit at the next level for what a potential NBA team might want from him. Maybe it's a bit of, a, of an oversimplification, but I think a lot of times the conversations that we have about guys who are sort of in that limbo range of making a decision is about, okay, is this, is this as high as your draft stock is going to get? If not, what could you stand to gain by coming back for another year? If, if we were to apply that to Ochai, like where do you sort of come out on that? For, for a guy who we saw make a big leap from his sophomore to junior year, do you think he's someone who could come back as a senior and showcase a more refined skill set that you think would bump his draft stock up? Yeah. Um, well, the answer is, of course, he could improve, but would that help his draft stock is the question. And Ochai is a pretty, um, it's kind of an open book with him, right? Like we all know what he's good at and we all know what he's really not so good at. But again, the question becomes whether the NBA teams want him to become better at the things that we know he's not good at. And specifically, I'm talking about ball handling and creating shots for himself. If he comes back to Kansas, will he be asked to do that this next year? Uh, maybe a little bit, but he was after that last year because he didn't have as many playmakers. But now they add Remy Martin. Now they add Joseph Yesifu. And you also have, you know, potentially Jan Wilson back and David McCormick another year. So honestly, to me, it seems like if Ochai came back, he sort of becomes that piece I talked about that he could be at the next level, which is a very nice third or fourth best player on the floor, defends his position well, is athletic, stands in the corner, makes a bunch of threes, but also doesn't overextend himself offensively with other guys who can make plays on the floor. So it's sort of a tricky formula. And the other thing I don't think we can overlook here, and and this happens in baseball all the time, a lot of times in baseball with the draft, you take the younger guy. I mean, there's more upside potential there. And you're also getting a guy, you know, closer to his peak and potentially have him an extra year. So you can't just overlook the fact that, hey, Ochai right now is a year younger than he will be in a year, no matter if he improves or not or or gets better with his skill set or not. So all those factors are in play. and. Like I said before, it at least seems from the previous statements he's made and what he put on social media that he wants to give this a long look. And the fact that he made the NBA Combine lets you know that there's at least some interest in the league as well, thinking that he could make that that jump if he wants to. So um, it's it's a tricky answer, but I I would honestly think that this Ochai Abaji, if he came back for a senior season, would be more closer to the sophomore year, where he was with Udoka, Azubuki, and Devon Dotson and kind of played third or fourth fiddle. Uh, closer to that than last year where a lot of games, you know, he was having to step up and, and be the guy. And he didn't always seem comfortable in that role, but he did take a big leap forward last year when it came to efficiency and three-point shooting. So uh, not really a negative on his part, but like I said before, if he's the fourth or fifth, fifth best player, 
on the NBA team, then uh, that's something I'm sure that a lot of pro teams would be happy with, and, and a lot of things or something that I think a lot of pro teams would sign up for, just knowing, hey, this guy can hold down that spot and make others around him better, and that seems kind of like a perfect role for Ochai, whether that's in college or in the pro. Would you be higher on Ochai or Marcus Garrett if you were an NBA team and you knew that, okay, I'm going to get my hands on this guy for the next three or four years? <laughs> yeah, it probably depends on fit, obviously, and, and what your team needs. Uh, for me, I would probably go with Ochai just because um, the three-point shooting, we know how valuable that is in the pros. And, and you know, for Marcus, it, it's been something he's worked on, the shooting. It's been something that has been a focus. And obviously, he knows it It caps his ceiling if he can't do it. You know what I mean? Like, if he can't hit three-pointers, open three-pointers, make teams respect him, and make teams come out to guard him so that he can get to his right-handed drive, which is pretty good, then that's just kind of a major bugaboo in his game. So, um, with Ochai, the other thing I would say is, you know, Marcus Garrett, I kind of shake my head every time I see it, but there was a... Uh, a highlight from Marcus Garrett's freshman year against Texas Tech where he takes about two dribbles down the lane and just throws in a hammer, one-handed dunk. And I just, it's like I can't believe that's Marcus Garrett. You know what I mean? Because yeah. what, we, what we've seen from him the last two years, um, athleticism is, is not something that we would say. You know what I mean? And it's not something that we would highlight as, as his skill set with all the injuries and all the things that have kind of dragged him down. That just that hasn't been a part of his game. And Ochai still at the point where, you know, he doesn't utilize it as much as you would want him to in transition, but the guy can still run. He can fight his feet. He can get up. He can dunk, all those sorts of things. So I would probably go with Ochai, and shooting would be the, the major factor in that. The other thing is, if Marcus were a big man, I would probably put more weight towards that just because defensive big men have a greater impact than guards do. Um, because you only do so much guarding one guy out there, whereas if you're a big man, you can block a lot of shots. Uh, but look, you can't overlook Marcus Garrett's IQ instincts, great hands, all those things that were on display at Kansas. Uh, again, we know the pieces that he's missing as well. If he shores some of those up, he's going to make for a great professional player whether that's in the NBA or somewhere else. But right now I would take Ochai, and I think that's probably been reflected in what you've seen from uh, most of the mock drafts out there and then also the NBA combines who they're inviting and who they are. Jesse Newell, Kansas City star with us here on Rock Chuck Sports Talk. If Ochai does keep his name in the draft, who do you think has the biggest opportunity open up for guys who are going to be at Kansas? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I hadn't really thought of it in those terms. Um, it's know, a, it's probably, a lot of minutes and a lot of shots that he's leaving behind. Probably Jalen Coleman lands, honestly. Um, but it, it's, I mean, <laughs> Bill Self gets paid the big bucks, and obviously he loaded back up his roster. I mean, there's no doubt that this offseason and the lost USC just drove him crazy. And he felt like from a talent and athletic standpoint, his team was not on par and needed to improve this offseason. That's the reason you bring in 10 new guys, eight of them being scholarship players, and have the roster overhaul you want to. The crazy thing is, if you go down the line here, Nick, um, and this is why you get paid the big bucks, you start to get to a roster crunch for minutes very, very quickly. I mean, all these guys that he brought in, there's going to be, if nobody gets hurt, there's some major, major, major competition for minutes. And I'm talking to a guy like Jalen Coleman-Land, who he's you know, he started all the games for Iowa State, right? Average, you know, was one of their top leading scorers. Has played on all these different teams. I mean, if Ochai comes back, I don't know what his role is. And uh, obviously, you get a guy like Joseph Yesifu. I mean, is he going to start? If he doesn't start, he's probably going to play a lot of minutes based off of the numbers he's had and the impact he had at Drake and great efficiency numbers and shooting numbers. But again, if you're starting 
those five guys that you think you're going to start if Ochai comes back, and yes, if he's coming off the bench and playing 25 to 30, <laughs> your rotation's getting pretty thin toward the uh, down the you know, down the end of the bench for guys to try to get in there and try to prove themselves. I mean, last year, what did you go like nine or 10 deep? And still there were guys like Tyon Grant Foster and Tristan Amaruna who really were not getting that many minutes at certain points in time and ended up transferring at the end of the season. So I'd probably say Jalen Coleman Lance because again, he seemed like the natural fit. Like, Hey, if KU loses Ochai, this guy can step in and hit an outside shot. That's what he does best. Now he doesn't possess all the other skills of Ochai and obviously is not as good defensively as Ochai is, but it probably would impact him the most, I'm not sure really what his role would be if Ochai comes back. But, and again, you look at the rest of the guards. I mean, Dewan Harris, what's his role? Yeah, what he knows at this point, right? Uh, Bobby Pettiford, when he first signed, it's like, oh, that's maybe KU's starting point guard. And then KU goes out and adds Remy Martin, you know? So um, there's a lot of guys, a lot of mouths to feed uh, when it comes to this backcourt. So I would probably bump all those backcourt guys up a little bit. But uh, when it comes to experiencing guys I've done before, it sure seems like Jalen Coleman-Land was brought in specifically as Ochai Abaji Insurance. So he would probably be impacted most if Ochai decides to stay in the pros. Yeah, he did. I think Ochai Insurance is is a good way to put it. And when you look at specifically the types of things or the reasons why he brought guys in, like Jalen Coleman-Lands was brought in to knock down shots. And if you don't have Ochai, I don't know who you sort of look at. I know that Christian Brown was at uh, uh, the Brett Ballard Washburn camp yesterday. And he's the, he's the sort of guy where I can't, quite put my finger on what he's supposed to mean to this team because there's part of me that says he finished the season so poorly last year he didn't have a ton of competition I could see his role decreasing yet there just isn't any precedent for guys to start for Bill Self one year and then all of a sudden be relegated to a lesser role like what do you sort of envision for Christian Brown either in expectations or what you think uh, the, the, the staff is looking to get from him here in his third year. Yeah, and I can't believe, I can't remember how I was talking to you about this. I think it was. I think it was Brady, Brady Morningstar. Yeah, yeah, that was, and, and that was what, 11, 12 years ago? Mm-hmm. Um, the last example you come up with is 2010, uh, at least just off the top of your head. But, uh, you know, I will say this, and I think this gets overlooked a little bit because this is sort of, I mentioned this um, before too, it gets to be like the, free agent mania you know what i mean when it comes to the nfl and and who are you going to add and and who are the winners of the free agency who are the losers of the free agency and all that stuff everybody kind of gets in a hoopla over the guys that you don't have and potentially could add to your roster when the real guys that matter are the ones that are on your roster and are going to get better i mean remember how everybody was you know jumping over backflips when the chief got levy on bell oh he's going to make the difference it's going to it's like well, you know, the running backs on the roster are the ones that they stuck with. You know what I mean? The CEHs yeah. of the world were still the ones that were better in that rotation, and maybe that was a little bit overblown because hey, um, we all sort of get in a flurry over the unknown and when what's out there and what potentially you know could be added to a roster. But I think for Christian Brown, you start with a guy who, depending on the advanced stat as you look at, was one of KU's most productive players last year. And it comes in a weird package. You know what I mean? He's a six foot five guy who can make shots, an excellent defensive rebounder and um you know it, it, that, that just doesn't that, that's not the package that you see in a guard very often but it's still valuable in its own way also a guy that doesn't turn it over very often um and you know i i know I, that here i'm going to reach over and pat myself on the back a little bit <laughs> i was very very high on ochai abaji becoming a better three-point shooter his junior year because i thought the form is there. It looks good. He's worked on it. There's no reason these shots can't go in. And sure enough, you see over a bigger sample, they went in. 
I feel the same way about Christian Brown. I mean, I know he struggled in this of last year. It seemed like confidence between the years was a big part of that, but I, I just don't, I don't see any reason for him to not knock down shots and knock it consistently down, especially with some of the difficulty and depth of the three pointers that he's made earlier in his Kansas career and the ability to make those off the dribble, which is a very difficult shot in its own way too. So I think what maybe gets overlooked is if you go to these projection systems and if you're looking at like the Bart Torvik of the world and they're trying to say, how good is Kansas going to be next year? Instead of mostly factoring in, hey, here's the new guys they got. You know, again, Remy Martin's a good dad and Joseph Yester's a good dad. What they look at is they say, hey, KU's got four returning starters potentially coming back and we're going to assume all those guys get a little bit better because that's what happens in college basketball and that's what happens at Kansas and that's what happens under Bill Self. So again, if you assume Christian Brown, don't take the sophomore Christian Brown take a little bit better than the sophomore Christian Brown and just incremental improvements, I think you have a starter at Kansas. And I think you have a guy that can be very productive in his own way, even though that looks a little bit different than other guards out there. So um, it's a long way of saying I'm, I'm high on Christian Brown. I think he'll have a great senior season. I think he will start from the beginning, the beginning of the year. I don't think he'll be pushed out of the starting lineup, but um, we'll see. Bill Self has options. He can go a different route he wants to, but uh, I think Christian Brown's a good player and I, I would expect him to be better in this junior season. I think we talked when we were having that conversation last week, we kind of talked about this too, uh, where Joe Yesifu sort of fits into the mix. And one thing that I keep going back to is the idea that when Bill Self has had the opportunity to play two guards next to one another, he has typically went with that and enjoyed it very much. And if Ochai were to stay in the draft, it feels like that possibility would open up immediately where you slide Christian more to the three, so to speak, even though that's not really what it would look like. But what it would do is give you the opportunity to slot Yesifu next to Remy Martin, have two legit ball handlers on the court together. If Ochai were to leave, would that be sort of um, the expected lineup that you feel like Bill Self would go to, if only because he has fallen in love with those two guard lineups in the past? He has. He loves multiple ball handlers. And something interesting that Joseph Yesifu said last week when I talked to him at the Washburn camp was he said a big preaching point from coaches from KU's coaches saying that they want him in there was they wanted to get back to running in transition, which is something that they were really lousy at last year. And if you remember, they tried to funnel a lot of that just through Marcus Garrett and, and Marcus Garrett, as I mentioned earlier, just you know didn't have the, the explosion and athleticism and honestly the legs when he was playing 40 minutes a game to sort of lead that kind of attack. When you have two guys on the court that can push the ball, that really helps you in that manner. But, you know, uh, honestly, I'll, I'll probably defer to Bill Self here because you know, last year I thought for sure Kansas would go to more five-guard lineups because of how good Jalen Wilson was looking in those early in the season. And then KU transitioned away from that. And what happened? David McCormick became an all-Big 12 type of big man and, and really overcame a lot of the issues he had early. But this much is sure. Bill Self can play whatever way he wants to next year. I mean, you want to play four guards, four small guards, and then David McCormick in there, you can do it. You want to put five guards or four guards out there and then got like Cam Martin, so you have you know, Villanova light, everybody can shoot from three. You can do that. You want to play two true bigs? Okay, put Cam Martin and uh, Dave McCormick on the court together or, or maybe put K.J. Adams out there. I mean, he can do whatever he wants to do next year because of the lineup combinations he's been able to create with all of the roster depth he has. So that'll be the big piece of the puzzle for him is figuring out what the best formula is, going to that, figuring out early in the year, getting comfortable with that, and then making sure he's confident that his choice is right. It usually is. That's what happens with Hall of Fame coaches, but uh, like I said, he has got so many options next year, and that's going to be part of uh, part of the detail of the season, the part of the storyline of the season, is figuring out how to play and, and what the best way to play is. And Bill Self will definitely be facing those questions early in the year. 
He is Jesse Newell. You can check out his work in the Kansas City Star at KansasCity.com. Jesse, as always, thank you for the time, sir. All right. Thanks, Nick. There's a lot of things you might be not really living up to snuff about right now. Are you getting enough haircuts? Are you shaving enough? Are you keeping up with your personal hygiene? Well, one thing that you don't want to be a loser about is having that dirty car. You know, whether it's just driving around town, whether it's you picking up a friend, you want the clean car. And don't you want the sparkly clean car that you're proud of? Well, guess what? Tommy's Express Car Wash. They are going to hook you up with a great car wash that's going to get that car sparkly nice so that when you go to the store, everybody's looking at your car and says, oh, man, where did that guy get his car washed? It's wash, rinse, repeat at Tommy's Express Car Wash. You can download the Tommy Club app today and enjoy endless washing for one low price. That's right, endless washing for one low price with the Tommy Club app. It's unlimited car washes. Unlimited clean, shiny, and dry. Unlimited use of exclusive app lane. Unlimited access to all Tommy's Express locations because there's a lot of them. Unlimited guest service and most importantly, unlimited happiness. They've got the tools and expertise to keep your car clean inside and out. Their wash packages let you pay for the services you want, including Tommy Guard and body wax, wheel cleaning and tire gloss, underbody flush and spot free rinse, and vacuuming. So download the Tommy Club app today and enjoy that endless washing. Go to Tommy's Express US Car Open Wash. begins tomorrow at Torrey Pines, third major of the golf year. Let's talk about it with our friend from Mayo Media Network. You can check out his work at oddschecker.com. DraftKings, the Jeff Feinberg show. He's got a ton of different ways to check out his content. Jeff Feinberg joins us now on the show. Jeff, thank you once again for joining us. Uh, let's start first with the venue. Torrey Pines is a name that everybody recognizes. It is a staple on the PGA Tour now, what is called the uh, the Farmer's Invitational. What do you think of Torrey Pines as a venue for a major event like this? Uh, I will say this. Torrey Pines seems to, to have a lot of detractors. Um, you know, a lot of people seem to think, you know, they look at the layout and Outside of being Oceanside, which is a big key, many call it a pretty boring layout. I, none of that sort of resonates with me. Uh, anyone who knows me knows how much I love the San Diego area, and I, I have fond memories of being at Torrey Pines, playing Torrey Pines, and of course, everyone holds 2008 with Tiger near and dear to their heart. So um, while there is like a bit of a crowd, there's some volume that's like anti Tory Pines. I'll never be one of those people. It's it's like hallowed grounds for me. Yeah. So what is the argument against it that it just doesn't do a whole lot other than look pretty? Like, is that is that what most of the detractors kind of go with? Yeah, that they didn't really like design it very well. Like, it's just a lot of like straight golf holes that are on, on the water. You know, they didn't use the land is best they could per se is what many would say. Go back to, to Kiowa, which leading up to it, a, a lot of the talk was about, um, you know, the difficulties with the dunes and the swirling winds and the daunting tee shots and the decisions that players have to make uh, on specific tee boxes. What sort of storylines, at least from how the course is going to play, like how do you think that plays out for a major championship? We've seen it at the Farmers. How is it going to be different now that it's at the U.S. Open? Yeah, I'm not really taking too much for what happened um, at the Farmers Insurance Open over the past few years. What's interesting enough, Nick, is 
of the past winners in the last five years, it's a farmer. Statistically, they all kind of did it differently. You know, most events on tour that we go to year in, year out, they, um, how do you put this? It seems to be the same statistical models, the same statistical, you know, stats, being an approach around, you know, uh, strokes gained approach or around the green or driving distance. Tory Pines, the last, you know, five winners, they're really all done it differently instead of putting really clutch on Sunday. What is your favorite storyline going into this U.S. Open? Is there one that stands out to you? Say that again, sorry. What's your favorite storyline heading into this U.S. Open? Is there one specifically that, that sort of stands out that, that you're most interested in? Uh, you know, obviously, it's, you know, that Bryson storyline is, is there. For me, it's just sort of how competitive the game is at the moment. But, but I think, you know, Rom, Rom or Xander redemption or, or like kicking down the wall, despite having not won a major, um, despite being so short on the odds board, despite I'm not betting them. But, but that, that is sort of probably the thing I would be most intrigued about. Is the Brooks Bryson thing getting a little overplayed in your opinion? In my personal opinion, it is. I don't believe it's going to live up to the hype this weekend. The USGA, I guess, had an opportunity to pour um, gallons of gasoline on it and serve them together. I don't believe they had the courage to do it, and I'm not surprised that they did it. Um, but I do believe it is pretty overblown, Nick. This isn't like a rowdy New York crowd that's like gonna, yeah, you know, really sort of play up to a lot of the stuff that we've been hearing. No, it probably would have been five. In my opinion. Yeah, five hours of those guys playing golf and then taking their hats off and shaking hands on the 18th green, and that would have kind of been the end of it. I do think it would have been a a low-risk situation for the USGA to put them together. Like, if, if your goal is to get people to watch an event with minimal risk, these guys aren't going to get into a fist fight on the course. I, I felt like that would have been sort of an easy win for the USGA had they chose to just put them together. Uh, yeah, in many ways you could you could say that. I believe they didn't really want to invite that circus, and um, I, I feel that they probably felt it was a going to, in my opinion at least, probably creates a distinct competitive disadvantage for Bryson. Mm. Like, you're giving Brooks exactly what he wants if you were to do that. And in many ways, I think Bryson has already kind of waved the white flag here. Yeah. Like, Brooks is always looking for someone to step into this ring with him, like off the court. Uh, he's tried to handle DJ. He's had a spat with Lori. You know, he's had over the years. And it fuels him and it fires him up. Bryson's like, okay, I'll play. And then I think he quickly <laughs> realized, oh, man. Like, this is Brooks fella. He, he, anyone on Twitter knows the guy's essentially like taking practice rounds with Portnoy in terms of like being really good on Twitter. So, you know, Brooks ain't in that league. On the golf course, or Bryson's not in that league. On the golf course, they're probably in the same league, close to the same league, whatever your personal preference is. On the internet, that's a one way fight. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And it's a good point because you look at the odds right now, both sitting there uh, at last check, 18 to one, starting with Brooks, because he does have the major pedigree. He finished runner up to 
to fill at the PGA. Obviously, he was in this in the PGA last year, sort of faded on Sunday, but the pedigree is still there, winning, winning two of these last four events. Starting with him, if you see Brooks Kepka sitting there at 18 to 1, is that is that close to an auto bet territory at this point? For a lot of people, it is. I understand why it is. It makes a lot of sense. I thought about it long and hard. Um, in the end, I didn't. I picked a couple other guys in that range, but I was close to picking Brooks. Makes total sense. I mean, when you consider the fact that, like you said, he's got the four majors, he's got the handful of second places, it's like, I don't know. Like, half the battle with making a golf bet is, I just want to fire picket on Sunday to enjoy, you know, the, the you know, to, to just be in it, to, to be part of that um, on Sunday afternoon at a major championship. And Brooks, kind of in that way, feels like the biggest sure thing. Is there such thing as as value at in an event like this? Because when we've talked before, you've sort of talked about those uh, pockets of value that you try to identify and sort of build your card around. Fascinatingly enough, Brooks always says that like he's scratching off half the field before he tees off because he knows those guys just aren't good enough to win. So you're taking 70 of the guys and saying, okay, I'm not even touching them. It seems like in an event like this, you should probably do more than that because the the, the number of guys that it feels like can win the U.S. Open just based off the types of winners we've seen in recent years looks to be relatively small. When you look at this field, Jeff, like about how many guys would you look at? You don't have to name them all, but like about how many guys do you think can win this event at this course? I mean, I will say, I mean, for starters, I take like a betting card here that's smaller and more compact and near the top of the board and acknowledge, you know, I'm going to double my bets and make like essentially half bet half the guys, but, but you're onto something until the USGA gives me a reason not to. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong, but it was Brooks twice, Bryson, DJ, even in the Woodland win, he literally had to putt and chip like Jordan Spieth. So it seems like even if you're not one of those big boys to do it, you'll have to be absolutely perfect. Woodland was, and he won, but the USGA is kind of pointing us here. So for me, it's those players that, you know, have that profile, but on top of it, they have to have had some success on polo greens in their career. And that doesn't mean they've had to have won a tournament on POA. Winning cards, you know, POA is not the most common surface, but um, they would have had to have played well on it. Like, just as an example, even Brooks Kepka having three really good rounds at Harding Park last year would be, like, enough for me, despite having a, a really bad fourth round and falling out of it at the PGA. Like, he didn't win, but I would count that. And I don't think he has a West Coast win. I'm certain he doesn't. Um, although he has won at um, in Phoenix a couple times. So there is that. So, yeah, Brooks Kepka, you know, would check that box. But uh, it, it's, it's that U.S. Open profile and a positive pole experience. And that doesn't leave many guys. Because once you've already crossed off that 70% and you're into that 30 and you're only going to allow yourself to pick guys with positive pole experiences, you're probably taking that, cutting that in half, if not more. You know, Hideki won the Masters. I think he f- closed at 60 to 1, if I have that right. Phil could have got him at several different numbers, but I think the most common was around 250 to 300 to 1. So it obviously doesn't seem like you're going to get anybody with that long of odds, but 
I don't know, maybe this sounds like a crude way of asking the question, but like who is the worst player that could win the US Open this week? Like where where's the cutoff line where you say if if you don't make this line, you're probably not good enough to win? Oh wow. Jeez, I'd be embarrassed. It'd be easy to throw mine back at me. Uh, my <laughs> cutoff's pretty low. I've got it at about sixteen players. But um yeah, going going. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I'm a gambling degen at times, and I've got best that guys over 100 to 1. So that doesn't mean I'm not making plays. But, uh, you know, going that far down the board, it would sort of maybe be in that, you know, Paul Casey. Yeah. You know, there's a guy that's above 50 to 1 in most places that I would consider betting. Um, I love Tommy Fleetwood, and he has two top fives in five career U.S. Opens. I actually believe he's a little he's he can be a little live this week, but it's few and far between for me. I'll probably be proven wrong. So, how many guys at the top would I have to give you where you would take them over the field? Like, if I started with top three guys, so if I gave you Rom, DJ, Brooks versus the field, would you take that? I don't know about just that, but if I could like sort of pick my own like six or something. And I wouldn't necessarily take the top six, but I would take six guys under 30, five or six, I would probably do it. But for me to give someone the field, I would probably want Rom, um, Brooks, Dustin, Bryson, and Rory. Okay. And then maybe let me pick one of, you know, a guy I really like, if it was a Cantley or a a Hovland or a Fino or even a Xander, I guess, what have you. Yeah. I just, I, I wonder where that cutoff sort of, that's, what, that's what I kind of wonder because you, you mentioned it earlier, like the profiles out there and we've seen it guys fit it time after time at this event. And it, it just seems like it's, it's no, it's not difficult to figure it out because the guys who fit that profile are the guys at the very top. I know somebody who, um, You've had a hard time quitting when it comes to betting over the years. Tony Finau is probably as consistent of a finisher in majors as there's been nine, nine top tens in his last 13 majors. And again, he would fit the billing. So I ask you, Jeff, why can't Tony Finau win the U.S. Open this week? I absolutely believe Tony Finau can win. You know, I absolutely believe he can win. Um, he, his scoring average at Torrey Pines in his career might be second to just John Rahm's in the last, like, five years. And I think in the last six years, he doesn't have anything north of a top, of a, outside the top 20. And it might even be as, as high as 16. And he's come as low as second place at Torrey Pines. Uh, he has the distance for the south course to do everything that he needs to do uh and it's the type of place where even par you know might actually work for you um but you know like tony like a lot of guys they'll have to make those clutch weekend par saves i'm confident he's finally going to do it though Uh, another guy i wanted to mention was victor hopeland because he he maybe have doesn't have the same pedigree as a guy like colin morikawa who has the pga championship under his belt but he it does seem like he would have the game that would be better suited to play well here. He's done well at U.S. Opens in the past, tied for 12 at Pebble two years ago, then 13th last year, Quail Hollow. How do you sort of see his chances of, of breaking through and, and becoming a major champion? Because those sorts of guys, 
it, it seems like it maybe would be a, a little bit too early. But then again, if it happened on Sunday, I feel like we would look back on it and say, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. So I'll just put it out there. I mean, I've bet Hovland at 30 to one. I guess I should have said one of the futures I had for this event was Finau at 40. Then when I bet him at 40, I thought he would have like won this year. So we wouldn't have had to defend that part of it. But more importantly, on to Victor, um, I am a true believer in Victor Hovland, and I think you make an excellent point. While in many ways, you know, Morikawa does have the trophies, and he's going to, you know, he definitely has that edge. You can't take it away. I mean, WGC's majors, uh, in many ways, we do see them as probably fairly equal, and I couldn't deny it. I think this course sets up exponentially better for Victor Hovland. Speaking uh, um, than it does for Colin Morikawa. He shot a 65 on the south course uh, yeah. earlier this fall. Tory Pines. He finished second to Patrick Reed, and he hit two balls out of bounds on the back nine on the same hole. Guess he had a real distance control issue um, behind the green, and he's been just absolutely phenomenal. But speaking of Morikawa, he's interesting because, like I mentioned, he doesn't fit the, the statistical profile of, of being a bomber, but he almost feels like an anomaly in some ways with his lack of distance because he, it seems like he, he's the one guy who maybe more than makes up for it with a, almost historically accurate irons play. I know he doesn't fit the billing, but... Is there a path for, for a guy like Morikawa to win a U.S. Open? Uh, yeah, absolutely there is. Just like there is a path for speed, and to a cheaper degree, there's a path for, for um, you know, a guy like Patrick Reed. If it plays to a certain way where, like, just chipping and putting is more paramount than absolutely everything, then we'll be okay. Those guys will be fine. Morikawa, to his feeling, his feeling is being in the fairway, hitting the green. When you think about what the winning score is, if he's able to do that, he'll be just fine. If he's off a little bit and he's got a scramble, he could be in real big trouble this week. So there's that part of it. But if you're betting a guy to win, I always say you're betting on his feeling. Because his B game to win a major probably wouldn't be good enough. Yeah. So if he really has to rely on the things he's not great at, he probably won't be in contention anyway. Jeff, before I let you go, give me your ideal Sunday scenario? What what would be sort of the perfect way for this thing to play out on Sunday? Well, I mean, I, I think I wouldn't be human if I guess I didn't say Brooks versus Bryson um, sort of battle. But for me, I would take just as much joy in seeing guys cross the finish line that, that haven't been there. You know, whether it was Rom or, or Xander, as I said earlier, or even Tony Finau. Um, I guess Tony Finau would make me the most satisfied <laughs> and would make me whole from all the loss Tony Finau major bets have had over the years. I feel it like it should just be like, as you said, all those top tens. there's ways to recoup your Tony Finau money. As we get farther deep into this, I've just become greedier about it. Thinking it's finally got a break. Well, I think a lot of those would be happy, like joyful moments for you. I feel like with Finau, it would be borderline spiritual if he were able to win the U S open. Yeah, absolutely. And since Ricky Fowler isn't playing, like a, like a, you know, just betting, as I mentioned earlier, you know, Fleetwood will sort of have that like guy I really like and would love to see win, but you know, it might be a bit big of an ask. But yeah, if Fina wins, I, I think everyone would love it. 
You know, we can finally stop having the conversation. And you could probably say the same thing about Xander Shoffley, despite having a couple career wins. <laughs> you know, it's pretty ridiculous in my opinion where he is. No, sorry, I shouldn't I shouldn't say that. But, you know, it doesn't feel like um, he should be ahead of some of those bigger boys on the odds board. Yeah. But if I had to pick someone like who to finish top five, I think Xander Shoffley's probably the safest bet. Yeah, I mean, he's got the pedigree as well, but you're right, though. The perception is just different. It's just different when when you have a major championship, especially a U.S. Open. So even if we can all acknowledge, you know, these guys are all great, uh, when you have the hardware to go with it, it just it changes the conversation a bit. It absolutely does. And hopefully, you know, some of these guys can get their monkeys off their back because have guys like Vander and Rom priced where they are without major championships, Obviously, the betting public is is pretty much on wait. Just it's, we're all just waiting for it. Essentially, yeah. he is Jeff Feinberg. You can check out all of his work on DraftKings Mayo Media Network, OddsChecker.com. He's got the Jeff Feinberg Show. All sorts of great content for you on U.S. Open Weekend every week, especially in the world of golf. Jeff, always a pleasure, my man. Thank you once again for uh, hopping on and uh, talking some golf with us, dude. Thanks so much. Anytime you need me, hit me up. And I'm all still about your boy. I got a future from Christmas, 125 to 1, Gary Woodland. Last time we were on a coastal U.S. Open California track, it all happened. So why not again? Let's go. All right. We got our quota. We got our, our Gary Woodland reference fitted in. That's going to make everybody happy. That's great to hear, man. Hopefully, uh, yeah, that'd be the best of both worlds, I think, for everybody listening and for yourself. All the best. Thank you.